for me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. Hello again. I've missed you. You might have noticed that there's a bit of a lag between these last two episodes. I was going to say sorry, but I'm actually not. (laughs) Because, no, I'm not actually sorry, because sustainability has to apply to me too. And sometimes there's just too much going on. Anyone else relate to that? I feel like we don't talk about this, though, enough in sustainability. We're not superheroes. There's only so many hours in the day. And for me, things can get quite crazy, especially when I've got other projects on, because I make this podcast myself. I've got a great sound editor, but the rest of it is all me. Anyway, I've just finished recording our second and third online courses coming in 2022. The first one, I'm the instructor and quite relevant to what I was just saying, it's all about how to make it work with sustainability for small or freelance businesses. Tip number one, give yourself a break. (laughs) The other one dives into co-creating with artisans, connectivity and indigenous wisdom. It's beautiful. It's taught by the fab Karishma Singh Kelsey. Can't wait. You can find out more at wardrobecrisisacademy.com. Okay, to the episode. Fashion Act Now is an activist group that came out of Extinction Rebellion in London with the aim, they say, of defining a crisis response to the climate and ecological emergency for fashion. Now we're going to hear from two of the original founders, environmental activist Sarah Arnold and former fashion editor Belle Jacobs, as well as Extinction Rebellion co-founder Claire Farrell, plus some of the new voices that they've brought in to call for de-fashion. And we'll be exploring this concept. De-fashion. Do you like that word? These voices are the Canadian-Dutch cultural anthropologist Sandra Neeson, and it's a treat to hear about her very interesting work in this interview, the British curator Shona Marshall, and New York stylist Sam Weir, There are more too, although we don't have them all on this interview, but Fashion Act Now is also working with the fashion futurist Geraldine Wary and accessories designer Lottie Selwood. Now Lottie, for example, has worked at Saint Laurent, Balenciaga and Celine. So these women in their different ways, except Sandra, I suppose, but the rest of them, they've all been fashion industry insiders, which I think is extremely interesting. They've been there, they've seen it. And they want to tear the whole thing down with a radical redrawing of the way fashion operates and indeed what it's for. This episode is a launch of sorts. They asked me to help them push this new, I'm not sure whether to call it a campaign, concept, call, idea into the world. De-fashion is a term they've conceived of to describe the role that fashion, they say, must play in degrowth. And it launches this week, and they'll be holding the first of many planned workshops and leading up to a big kind of symposium. They're calling it a de-fashion symposium to bring together experts and the public to talk about a post-fashion future. You can find all this info and sign the pledge on their website, which is www.fashionactnow.org. Now, it's quite long, this episode. Might even split it into two parts. I don't know how long it is because we've got six speakers all in one, but I promise you it's enthralling. And if you like, you can listen to it in two parts. And then actually a third, you can go back to episode 97 from series three, which also features Sarah Arnold and Claire Farrell talking about Extinction Rebellion. I hope you enjoy our closing episode of series six, and I wish you a relaxing, inspiring holiday. I send you my love.
We'll be back in January with some amazing guests for Series 7. Can you believe it? But until then, don't be a stranger. I'm on Instagram at Mrs. Press and at The Wardrobe Crisis. We've got our online courses for you. You can find all the information and the show notes on our website, thewardrobecrisis.com. All right, now let's sit down with some of the change-demanding disruptors behind Fashion Act Now. Welcome back to The Wardrobe Crisis podcast, Sarah Arnold and Claire Farrell. And a warm welcome for the first time on this show, but not the first time we've met, to my friend Belle Jacobs, and to new members of Fashion Act now, Sandra Neeson, Shona Marshall, and Sam Weir. Why don't you begin by just reading out some of the key words from this new pledge? And I'm going to ask you, Sarah, to begin. So, I pledge to defashion now. The era of fashion of a dominant globalised system must end. It is neither relevant nor civilised. Claire Farrell, can I ask you to read out some of Fashion Act Now's demands? I demand of our leaders degrowth now. Governments and the fashion industry must acknowledge the continued growth of the fashion industry is destructive and there must be a drastic and immediate planned reduction in energy and resource consumption. Defashion now. Governments and the fashion industry must hold citizens' assemblies to work out how to downscale the fashion industry to transition to local regenerative clothing systems free from fossil fuels by 2030. And justice now. Governments must hold the fashion industry to account and ensure the fashion industry pays up for the loss and damage it has caused. Shona Marshall, I'll ask you to read the section titled Our Vision. Absolutely. Fashion Act Now aims to dismantle the dominant fashion system and help ignite a post-fashion era. And post-fashion, if you're wondering, is a diversity of independent local clothing systems, all equally respected, free from the dominant globalised fashion industry. It's clothing created in the community, for the community, sharing and nurturing humanity's abundant knowledge, skills, culture, creativity and resources. It's regenerative production systems that repair the earth and care for people and animals living in it. Sandra Neeson. I'll ask you, please, to read one part of the pledge that addresses people and how the fashion system, as it currently stands, builds on colonial injustices to exploit and to other. Fashion normalizes and depends on the belief that certain people, places and cultures are disposable for the sake of growth. Fashion sacrifices Indigenous cultures, producing more workers and consumers. Fashion dehumanizes splitting the world into those deemed fashionable and modern and those who are not. Thank you. Okay, Belle, Fashion Act Now is an activist group. It's born out of Extinction Rebellion and you're one of the co-founders. We're here today as you launch this new campaign, asking fashion to de-grow now. So let's begin with that word. How would you define it? I mean, I feel like everybody's talking about post-growth and degrowth. They're hot topics in economics. It's moved a bit into the mainstream discourse, I think, not that we're doing it, but beyond slowing down, what does it mean to degrow fashion? Well, thanks, Claire. Um, I'm really pleased that you talk about 
the fact that post-growth and degrowth are now hot topics, but actually they originated in 1972 with the Club of Rome and the really controversial report Limits to Growth. So I think that was the first time where someone raised this issue as far back as that. And as we've seen, actually, the world has not reacted to that report. Defashion has links to the term degrowth. And I'm going to read out Jason Hickel's definition of that just to give you a context. Degrowth is a planned reduction of energy and resource use designed to bring the economy back into balance with the living world in a way that reduces inequality and improves human well-being. So Jason, you know, one of the leaders of the movement, ecological economist. So this is what it's about. It's about bringing fashion specifically here within the carrying capacity of the earth. So making sure it doesn't exceed its planetary boundaries as it is so horrendously doing right now. And that means reshoring production of clothing. So we're reducing transportation. It means using local materials and materials that don't harm the environment. It means cutting out use of synthetics. And it means addressing this key issue of overproduction. We produce 120 billion items of clothing a year. And that's based off only a fraction of the industry that's actually counting the number of items it's producing. So it could be way more than that. In an ecological emergency, that's just about the last thing we need. But Claire, I'm going to say one more thing. It's not just about addressing the size of the industry. Defashion is about addressing the culture of the industry, because at the moment, we have deeply embedded within the very systems of this industry, ideas of, of social and racial injustice, very, very deeply embedded. So we need to, through defashion, recognize that it isn't fair to use people, millions of people in the global south, to make clothes for people in the global north, who then throw them away after a few wears. And through defashion, we need to recognize the validity of other clothing systems, of which there are many hundreds of beautiful clothing systems. We need to re-recognize, if you like, that clothing is much more than signs of status or artificial notions of beauty or wealth, that they can be symbols of, of so much more. And so we think of this really, defashion may sound negative, we think of it as a movement of joy, of possibility, of liberation. It does not mean the end of beautiful clothing or creativity. If anything, it means the true beginning or the true rebirth of beautiful clothing and creativity. I love that you brought it back to joy because I think it can be really depressing when we think about the scale of how bad the current system is when you hear those numbers about more than 100 billion garments a year being produced and something like, I don't know, more than 80% of them ending up in landfill. We're in a terrible kind of mess, aren't we? And so the tendency is to think we need to stop, we need to tackle overproduction, and that means we can have no joy or no flourishing. But you look at it differently, right? Oh, very much. I mean, I think we're in a new time of emergency where we're starting to recognise that, yes, it's incredibly important that people understand the extent of what we're facing, which is catastrophic. But that without a vision to aim towards, it's very, very difficult to give people something concrete to work mm. towards. So part of defashioning is this visioning, this, this joyful visioning of what could be. Let me ask you about the personal side of things, Belle, because I know that your prior life was in conventional fashion. You're a journalist. You, as I did, worked in the old system, basically selling trends and clothes. I know we did more than that, but that's the crux of it, right? There's always a shopping story. How did you get to this point? And maybe you could have a little word on how we might all transition that way when so many of us are locked in the previous system. So I talk a lot about Rana Plaza being a transformative point for me, as it was for others in the industry. From that 
point in time, everyone started asking really, really difficult questions of the industry, not just in terms of social justice, which is obviously what Rana Plaza really highlighted, but in terms of environmental impact, in terms of climate impact, in terms of impact on animals and nature, which is huge because all of our materials come from nature, obviously. I think perhaps what gives someone the power to turn their back on the industry is the dissolving of the myths that the industry holds up. On the face of it, doesn't fashion look amazing? But one of the things that we want to do in this campaign is to unveil some of those myths, challenge some of those myths to show the reality behind. And once you get to grips with that reality, Claire, like you know, it's horrific what's happening for an industry which really produces items that arguably for most people who purchase them are not necessary items, are purely luxury in terms of the fact that we just don't need them. So I think once you recognize the true horror of what's going on underneath, it's very, very difficult to keep working in that space. We've worked in this industry for long enough to make our marks. We've done it. We've profited from it in our own ways, not in the same way as Zara, but still. Is it not a very privileged position to be able to take these choices to say, In my case, I worked at Vogue. I don't want to do that anymore. I've decided to work in a different way. What would your advice be or what would you say to people who are thinking, well, it's all right for you? Shona. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a really good question. I teach fashion photography. So it's something I think about constantly. Me and my students talk about constantly. And I think there is space for people to build new ways of expressing themselves there are ways that you can kind of carve it out to work within this new world that we're building and I think it we think about the kind of pluriverse so this kind of different ways there's not one straight way and I think there is space so I don't think all is lost but I do understand it's it is challenging what about the other side if we switched to post fashion tomorrow what would happen to the garment workers As a collective, we are supportive of reparations. So all those old white men that have made all that money selling clothes, that they will have to pay for their crimes to people on the planet. So pumping that money into those communities that they could then make some choices. Sarah, you've probably had a similar epiphany, but we're going to unpack these things in more depth later on. But can I ask you first to summarise how you think we might practically degrow fashion? Mm. I mean, I think Belle has touched on some of these points already, but if we're talking about how we practically degrow, we need to think about where we're trying to get to. Our vision for post-fashion is based on the commons. Uh, So we've really thought about what are the roots of growth? And people often overlook what those roots are. And that takes us back to kind of feudal England when there used to be common land. People lived off the land. And then they brought in a system where they started to enclose that land so that the commoners then had to work so that they could earn a living to get the things that they need to live. Essentially, it brought in the idea of a workforce. They had to work for a living. So that creates an environment in which you have to have growth. And so what is the opposite of enclosure? It's the commons. It's that you have a collective that shares and nurtures and manages collective resources. So 
I think this is a really nice definition from David Bollier and what the commons is. And he says, the common is a living process of commoning that enables people to co-create a sense of purpose, meaning and belonging while meeting important needs. And I think that definition is so important because it takes us back to the myths of fashion. We kind of believe that through buying these material things, we will feel a sense of worth and belonging when actually we can achieve those things through the process of commoning instead. And so we want to kind of ignite this idea of a fashion commons. So then let's go back to your question, how do we get there? So I think there's three parts of this. Firstly, we need to dismantle the system that we currently have, this dominant globalized fashion system. We call it fashion with a capital F. So how do we do that? We need resistance. We need to, as Bell said, call out the myths. But this um, dismantling has to be a collaborative and iterative process. And it has to happen in solidarity with the global south. And we, we don't have all the answers, but we feel that that's something that needs to happen. And then we need to move away from this system of excess to one of sufficiency instead. We need to move away from a system of exploitation. But then we also need to actively repair. And again, that's us in the West repairing ourselves, repairing this obsession with individualism and thinking more about the collective. But we also need to repair the damage that's been done to others then we need to build these post-fashion systems. So again, thinking about the commons, but the commons is not just about us kind of coming together as a little community and doing a nice thing. The commons should be a process of resistance as well. It should be rebellious and it should be thinking about how it scales and grows. It should be a political act in itself. I was going to say, I mean, Fashion actually has a, a long and colourful history of being an instrument for rebellion. I mean, if you look back to the kind of DIY culture of the 80s, for example, there's lots of pockets of resistance that have rumbled along while commercial fashion has grown into the rabid beast it is today. But you talked about sufficiency and coming back to understanding when enough is enough. And I feel like that's very relatable. A lot of, a lot of people feel that, don't they? That there's just the excess is becoming revolting and it's easy to imagine pulling back from that and saying, I don't need any more. I've got enough. If you're lucky enough to be in a position where that's the truth. But the bit that's hard is the system change bit. When we talk about not making the commons a sewing circle and making it into a pathway for dismantling a, an unjust system, that stuff's very hard. Right now, we're talking about a multi-trillion dollar global industry that also powers economies and ensures that certain people are paying the rent. I don't know if we can say that about them all. But Claire, your big question, as one of the founders of Extinction Rebellion, you've pushed a policy, if you like, of direct action. There's rebellion in your heart, but how do you actually do that when it comes to changing the system? It's all very well to say, got to get rid of capitalism and revert to the commons or create a new commons, but how are we supposed to do it? And I think that my big question to you is, how can we begin to shift or revolutionise these entrenched systems with regards to fashion? Yeah, thanks, Claire. Well, I mean, I think one of the problems with this stuff often is that we 
get stuck in a kind of what well, is it this or is it this and I've certainly like through my career had had times when I thought it was better to work within the bigger fashion system and times when I thought it was better to work with a small startup where we completely control the sort of ethics of what we were doing ourselves and going from this to this to this to this saying which where where am I going to find the most agency you know and similarly at the moment I think people are doing the same with like do we need legislation or do we need the private sector to do it do we need to get the government to change or do we need to get businesses to change and things as like both parties appear very powerful and everyone knows that the government in this country at least in the UK won't even put a penny on a fast fashion garment so how are they, are they exactly going to engage in a degrowth agenda nobody knows let me just pick you up on that in case listeners haven't heard of that so in the fixing fashion report and its proposals in 2019 that was submitted by the environmental audit committee to the UK parliament one of the recommendations there were 19 of them was that one pence was added to the price of a retail garment at the retail level yeah is that right yeah to pay for better recycling. Anyway, the answer was no, <laughs> wasn't it? Yeah. I mean, they rejected all of them, didn't they? Also, I wanted yeah. to just ask you to tell everyone, just really briefly in case they don't know, you've worked as a designer, right? You've had a label. Yeah, and um, and I still have some stock, which I need to sell. Um, <laughs> but I, I'm a terrible capitalist because I don't have any interest in selling things so I was quite a good designer and product developer but I'm really bad at selling things so that for a one woman startup was never really going to go particularly well but I think the government here and probably a lot of other governments where we really see the most horrific consumption rates in the world they don't have any intention of legislating against the fashion sector that said, they don't really have the intention of supporting it very well either, most of them. But they certainly don't have any interest in creating the laws that would help anybody to run the industry in a better way. And I always just go back to the statement from Jonathan Porritt when I heard him on Safia Mini's podcast a while ago. And he said, you know, if you're serious about improving the conditions of this industry, you will campaign for legislation against yourself because that's the only way that you can level the playing field. The problem then is that you're asking the fashion industry to become highly politicised and move into the effort of serious political work. And then you find the monolith of our current supposed democracy in Britain. And I would say, arguably, if you want serious legislative change, you have to have a successful mass resistance movement in order to get that. So then you go to the next step and you say, well, actually, dear fashion industry, would you like to quit your job and join the rebellion and join in nonviolent resistance until we get a better result for the environment and for social and global justice? And then you get to like, oh, well, maybe that's a bit far for the fashion people because they're not even sure whether they can like sign a petition yet or they're not even sure, you know. So it feels that you're sort of constantly in this difficult place. I think what Fashion Act now has tried to do and will try to do, importantly, is recognise fashion as a space where culture is greatly affected by fashion and a lot of the people in the industry are not part of it just because they care about, you know, sustaining and increasing the spiralling capitalist system. They are actually wonderfully creative people with good hearts, with good minds, and they know that they can affect culture. And what we want to say is do a decent job of affecting culture right now because you need people to support those in resistance. You need people to support those people who are being marginalised and oppressed. And you need to see really radical, rapid change. Otherwise, our economies are going to collapse. 
I want to bring Sandra in here. I feel like it's the perfect moment to talk about fashion culture, but really quick fire, Claire, does a pledge work? Is it a powerful tool? We started by sharing some of the words from your new pledge. I think a pledge can be a really good place to begin where you set an intention and where people understand the seriousness of what you're saying. So I think there's a sort of fierceness to that pledge. And, you know, we launched Extinction Rebellion with a declaration of rebellion. And um, yeah. and I think that it's very useful for, for capturing the spirit of what you want to see going forward. And then everybody knows you've put your stall out and it's very clear. It is not a mechanism that guarantees social change, unfortunately. Sandra, what are your thoughts on, on the pledge as a good place to start? I haven't actually stood up and saluted and, and said it out loud, but I am aware that when you do take a pledge, you're making a commitment. And that's very different from reading a pledge in a book or hearing it said by somebody else. When you actually sign up, you're making a pledge and you may not be able to keep it all the time, but at least you're committed and you're constantly aware and you're bouncing your day-to-day activities relative to that pledge that you made. Um, I think it takes you a step forward. I think it's a very, very important part of what we're doing to actually commit. And that's also because of what my colleagues here have said, the time crunch is so, it's looming right there. And we have to make change very, very quickly. All right. Sandra, you're a fashion academic. I read this interview you did with Shona. You said you're not one for definitions, that you're much more, and I quote, interested in the dynamics of change, interpretations and comparing. And you told Shona that you prefer to skip the definitional part and look at the nature of the beast. I started off asking Belle to define defashion, but I'd like to ask you, can you tell our audience how you view this beast that is the current global fashion system? Okay, um, I'll start, Claire, by saying it's really interesting to me to hear myself described as a fashion academic. I'm a trained anthropologist, and I happen to get a job in a department of clothing and textiles, and I feel, in a sense, that my years of fieldwork in North Sumatra were followed up by years of fieldwork in a department of clothing and textiles, about which I knew nothing when I started. And certainly my critical view on fashion came from bouncing the two worlds that I was familiar with, one in North Sumatra and one in that department of clothing and textiles, bouncing them off against each other. And going to your specific question, that beast, I was thinking about that this morning, um, how you could sort of describe a brown bear and say, you know, he's got fur and brown hair, he's got ears, um, but then you don't really know anything about the brown bear. If you talk about whether or not he hibernates in the winter, what his habitat is, what kinds of claws he has, what he eats, then you come to understand the brown bear more. And I think what I was getting at in that interview with Shona was that we have to get beyond the look of the brown bear. You know, we have to get beyond appearances, the photograph of the brown bear looking nice against some leaves. And we have to start talking about what does the beast do? And I guess it was early in 2003, I think I wrote an article about dualism in fashion. And I started to see that fashion is as fashion does. And it's what it does is build a hierarchy of inclusion and exclusion. And so I started to look at that on a global scale. 
So you have the fashionable, you have the not so fashionable, you have the unfashionable, and then you have the people that are not even on the radar. They're not even included in that fashion paradigm. And that's what I started to look at. That category of fashion, who decides who's fashionable, who's not, and who doesn't even appear on the radar. And that says a whole lot about who makes the category and who manipulates it. And you're in journalism and and Bell as well. You know how that whole mechanism works. And I guess when I was in Sumatra, I was with the people who didn't appear on the screen. And then I started to think about why are we leaving out certain people? What does it say about us? Who are we leaving out? And who we're leaving out is people in the Southern nations, indigenous peoples, people of color, peasantry, folk peoples. And then the other key point to add to this crucible here is that a lot of us in the West think of fashion as something that just is, you know, it exists. And we're unaware that we create the fashion system, just like we create the economy. It's not something that we have to carry a big burden on our shoulders, we can change the system because we created it. It's socially constructed. It's not like trees and rocks that are out there. And because we make it collectively, we can change it collectively. And that's what FAN is all about. Fashion Act Now is about recognizing the clothing of the entire globe and not putting in those artificial distinctions about who has fashion and who doesn't, because that's about racial discrimination. It's a colonial category. You talk about this idea of fashion sacrifice zones. Could you explain what you mean by that and expand on it a bit, please? I worked in my department of clothing and textiles in Alberta. Alberta is now famous for the oil sands and it's the home of the Cree people. And I remember demonstrating and petitioning and doing all kinds of things for the sake of the Cree people before the tar sands began. And if you take a look at now at pictures of the tar sands, you just see as far as the eye can see, black, desolate, horrible, horrible landscapes. It just unbearable makes your skin crawl. And that's probably one of the worst sacrifice zones in the world. The land is completely unusable. It's desecrated totally. And it's condoned. I mean, it's condoned by governments. It's condoned by business. It's all for the sake of oil. We need oil. We need to burn it. We need to make uh, fibers from it. So people have been talking about sacrifice zones in those terms, also in terms of plantations. And of course, cotton comes from those kinds of sacrifice zones where huge tracts of land, uh, where you've pushed the native people off their lands and you've turned them into laborers or slaves. Uh, You've made the land unusable for anything else so that we have enough cotton to make our clothes, for instance. So sacrifice zones we know about and they're talked about in terms of places. And when I started to work in North Sumatra and living in the villages, I realized that fashion makes and is complicit in more sacrifice zones than just the spatial ones. I saw people in villages too poor, and of course, poverty is created by governments 
too poor to be able to continue, not enough land or land quality is compromised, whatever. And then having to go to the cities to look for a job. And they may have been brilliant weavers, very highly skilled people who created their own clothing systems, uh, indigenous ones that were sustainable and, and fit nicely with the environment for thousands of years. And they would go off to work in factories where they would be considered unskilled and they would be working on menial jobs that were mind killing. But they weren't just mind killing. They were, you know, they're people killing, they're culture killing. Uh, these people would be leaving behind their cultures, leaving behind their language and their traditions. Their children would come with them and leave behind their languages and traditions and never become inculcated in them. And I realized that this whole way that we're creating our fashion with the labor done in the Southern nations is in fact creating cultural sacrifice zones as well as human sacrifice zones. So in that article that I wrote about fashion as sacrifice zone, I referred specifically to people and culture. And that's something that I don't think the fashion industry has recognized, that it has been as a globalized system. I mean, I remember when fashion globalization was hailed as, you know, fashion is now throughout the whole world and we're getting with it. And the downside, this part of the loss of other culture and the loss of sustainable clothing systems has never again reached the radar. So yeah, that is something I've brought to uh, Fashion Act now. We've talked about it an awful lot. And what's emerged from that conversation is the recognition that Sacrifice zones don't limit themselves to spatial areas or cultural areas, but in fact, also temporal areas, because we're losing our future. We're losing our future through this kind of huge overproduction, huge manufacture of waste. So it's also a temporal zone. And it's, again, it's condoned by governments and big business. And you were talking earlier about conceptual changes that need to take place in Claire Farrell as well. I think that that could be a powerful trigger for people to, to change their jobs or to start working on, on new things. It's just that sense of a common humanity and, and longing for clothes that are ethical and, and not something that will hurt other people through wearing them. Thank you for that. Belle, I was going to ask you about the language on one of the lines in the pledge, which to me, I was like, that is a bit much. I think maybe talking about cancerous growth could be too alienating and people won't want to go there. But then listening to Sandra speak there, I think, well, seems fairly logical as a kind of progression from that. But I'm going to ask you anyway. This sentence is, fashion is a cancerous growth, obliterating bio and cultural diversity. And as I said, I find that quite, <gasps> and I wondered how you felt or whether you worry that might provoke too much and alienate people. Yeah, it's a really in your face expression, isn't it? But I think, as we've just heard from Sandra, when you explore the sheer devastation of the industry and Sandra I'm going to carry that you know sacrifice one of the sacrifice zones of, of fashion is the future it's just you know it's shocking so so we're not saying that uh, fashion is the only cancerous growth on this planet but it's certainly the one that we're going to be focusing on now particularly with Sarah Clara and I with our backgrounds in Extinction Rebellion we do see the value of strong statements in provoking the debate that needs to be had around difficult issues and we know that there will be backlash and there will be people kicking back and and that's all part of the transformation and change that we need to see where people start to go that's outrageous hang on how outrageous is it and they get to a point perhaps maybe hopefully where they go 
actually, maybe that's fair enough. So we'll see how this goes, but we're ready for it. I'd like to add one thing, if I may. I think this is really key to the kind of future we'd like to facilitate. When we think of sacrifice zones, we fall quite quickly into that paradigm of, you know, poor them in the South. And isn't it terrible that they're getting destroyed? But I think that we have to turn that on its head as well. Just as we know that currently people who are interested in sustainable agriculture have been learning that Indigenous peoples have been doing sustainable agriculture, and we have an incredible amount to learn from them. And we are learning from them, and it's helping us change our systems. Quite recently, there is a book written by David Graeber and David Wengro about the history of the world, a new way of looking at it. And they talk about Western civilization as being stuck. And I think if you see all these more than 30 COP gatherings of world leaders to reduce CO2 emissions and CO2 emissions only go up, then you know how incredibly stuck we are. And Fashion Act now is a response to that. And part of getting unstuck, as we know from that book, is taking a look at Indigenous views of the world, Indigenous ways of working in the world. And I think the same thing can be the case with fashion. What we are destroying with our fashion system is precisely what can give us hints and directions about how to transform. And that means that rather than pitying and feeling sorry and falling into that mode, we can treasure and we can celebrate and we can support and we can examine and dialogue north-south and find alternatives that could potentially work. I always think it's so funny in a dark way that fashion positions itself as the cutting edge of modernity and change. And yet that only applies to a collar or a hem. They're just never really kept back past the garment. I mean, it's like we're incredibly old fashioned as an industry. We're still doing things mired in industrial revolution practices from 150 years ago. Oh, dead on. Exactly. And it's about the visuals. I mean, we have focused so intensely on the visuals that we've left out the political and the economic and the social. And that's the brown bear, you know, just the picture of the brown bear without understanding his habitat. I also want to bring us back to the climate emergency as well. We've just come out of COP um, and the current pledges that are made there, and these are pledges, not uh, mandatory, will bring us to 2.4 degrees rise in temperature. And we are currently at 1.1 and look at what is happening now. So the chances are that fashion will change whether it wants to or not, as life as we know it will change whether it wants to or not. And so it's almost like, are we going to embrace the idea of a a managed transition as dignified as it can be in a time of climate emergency, or is it going to implode? Because what we've seen is that when it implodes, as it did during the pandemic, those on the front line of the climate disaster and those making our stuff are the first to be hit and the hardest hit. So we are really at a crunch point here. Mm, Yeah, I mean, I would just add to that, the current policies coming out of COP26 actually take us to 2.7 degrees by the end of the century, which means by 2040, we have a 50% chance that in that decade, we will have a multi-bread basket failure. That means us, we can't feed ourselves anymore. 
so how will we be thinking about clothes? Will we be buying clothes in that situation? Do we do a transition now or do we just let disaster happen? All right. I want to bring in Sam Weir now. Sam is a stylist. She's based in New York. Sandra mentioned that maybe these big questions might act as a catalyst for people changing their jobs and finding new ways to do things. Sam, tell us what you do. Yeah, so I've worked under stylists for a majority of my career, although their areas of expertise differed. So from celebrity styling, editorial, commercial, runway, personal, I've seen most of that side of the industry. And I then went on to become a junior fashion editor at an independent publication and really reached the point I had always dreamed of when I was younger and listened to everyone and followed that traditional fashion path, got there and it it just didn't feel right to me. And, you know, my anxiety over our climate crisis was steadily increasing that whole time. And to watch fashion do nothing was deeply upsetting. So I quit and I worked in a completely different other industry. Um, but throughout that time, I was still doing research on the side about what? styling. Wow. So you actually moved industries specifically because you felt that fashion wasn't doing right by the planet. Yeah. And by the people as well. I just think it was not really acknowledging the context that we are living in at the moment. And that felt quite bleak to me. So that's why I left. But I do still love fashion at its core. So I was doing some research on the side about styling and how it could do and really be more than simply a tool to sell clothing. I really felt the act of it and the service of it had been co-opted by industry. And then I also read that 50% of the average wardrobe goes unworn. And it really clicked to me there that there's a lack of conversation and also education to the general public around how to wear our clothing or, in other words, how to style our clothing. There's no shortage of people, articles, companies telling us what to buy, but where are those teaching us how to wear and care for our things? So that's when I ended up creating what is now Let's Be One. And we're launching in February 2022 with a one-on-one styling service conducted over Zoom and FaceTime. And during these sessions that we have with people, we find style solutions through your wardrobes, not through consumption. May I ask how old you are, Sam? Yeah, I'm 24. When you talk to your peers or perhaps looking back when you told your peers that you'd got to this place that you'd aspired to getting in the conventional magazine system and in styling. You're basically living the dream of so many people potentially listening to this. What did they say? Did they say, oh God, I feel guilty too. You're really brave. Or did they say, you're crazy. You get to work on this amazing stuff. Yeah, it was definitely you're crazy. Uh, they didn't really understand what I was speaking of and even just dreaming of as like an actual realistic possibility and that's why I went searching for groups and that's when I found fan and realized I'm not actually crazy I'm I just was around the wrong people I needed to be around these people that truly encourage this type of thinking I do think it is inspiring to listen to you Sam because you took a step that when I meet particularly emerging designers who really feel like the system is not delivering a space in which they 
see themselves thriving in the future and they Mm. feel guilty and they feel frustrated, but they don't really know where to turn. Taking that leap and changing, it's really bold. And most people, I mean, coming back to that privilege conversation, actually, it is still a privilege to be able to make that choice and to say, I'm going to walk away from this job, but you did it. You're in your twenties. You said, I'll go and do another job. So I don't know. I find that a very inspiring thing. Well done. That's not really a good question, is it? (laughs) It's a non-question. It was terrifying, like back to mental health. It took me a really long time to even say to others that I was going to do this. Like this is a secret project for quite some time. And I work a normal job and this is what I've been building on the side to try to imagine it. But being around and finding this community, it just drives me. Okay. So among your peers in general now, what level of concern do you see, perhaps in New York, around these issues, around the climate crisis and social injustice? Yeah, I think the awareness is there, but now we're in this spot of what do we actually do about it? Because we're all in a pretty tough position where we would love to work in the fashion industry. You know, we're drawn to the creativity, the collaboration, like the just fun of it all, but that's not the reality of our world anymore. So like, even from my experience, I was interested in styling for that creativity to build these characters with clothing. Then I actually became a stylist and I realized it was just another tool to sell product. And I didn't want to be a part of that system. I think no one really wants to be a part of it. I obviously can't speak for everyone, but there's this frustration of a lack of change, but then it also feels like there's nowhere to go, you know, either work as the industry says or leave. So that's why finding FAN and all the members inside of it honestly offered me a bit of hope about the fashion industry that I haven't felt in quite some time. You know, the fashion that we were all drawn to is there. We just have to work to find it again and even get a bit more creative, um, which I think we can all do as fashion people. Shona, you and I have met before. You were in Sydney, where I am. You're curating an exhibition on Isabella Blow that came to town. And I I raise that because for me, that's like the epitome of kind of fashion excessive creativity and joy. And I'm interested to know how you think we can keep that while we discard the rest. To talk about this statement, defashion is not the end of clothing culture and creativity. Yeah, it's really interesting that you bring up Isabella Blow because I've been thinking about her a lot lately. I mean, she struggled with mental health issues. She was diagnosed with bipolar and she had issues throughout her life around her mental health before she took her own life in 2007. And the exhibition was really a celebration of the way she lived her life through clothes. And I, I mean, I can't speak for Isabella, but I can speak for myself and draw on sort of my first-hand experiences of the insidiousness of fashion with a capital F on my own mental health. And it's this kind of idea that it promises to fulfill us buy this and you'll be renewed, you know, this idea of get this new dress and you can escape your reality. I think definitely as a young person, even through my 20s, that was something I explored. And so I think the key to how we must rebuild our clothing systems is we have to think about ways we can nourish and enrich. And I think one of the ways to do this is to do away with this idea of planned obsolescence, false scarcity. If you look at the kind of definition of culture, it's customs, art, social institutions and achievements of a particular nation, people or other social groups. 
I think fashion really perpetuates the myth that's linked to culture. But currently, fashion is globally homogenous and often relies on novelty and all to generate kind of larger financial profits. So I think really if we were to reclaim our clothing and find collective agency within our communities to decide how we want to clothe ourselves, I think we'd once again have a rich patchwork of stars and creativity all over the world. I think we need to put a stop to being told what's in or what's out and decide for ourselves. I think actually this could be incredibly creative. I actually think it would be much more creative than what we have in place currently. I think it would be really freeing. I think of fashion as a game that you can't actually win. And I think with fan, we want to invite you to think about what might happen if you delete the game. (laughs) When did you get into sustainability? I mean, you've been working in the fashion space, albeit out of commercial fashion as a curator in museums and looking at archives and experiences, but still within the kind of fashion ecosystem. When did you start thinking about sustainability, worrying about it or even bringing that into your work? I came to it honestly in a really naive way. I started sort of researching fashion and sort of sustainability in inverted commas in 2018. And it happened in parallel with changes in my personal life. You know, I was really looking at the way I interacted with clothing in a a very personal way. And I think the climate crisis is a problem of our day. And as a curator, I was interested in how fashion is so closely linked to the zeitgeist. And I was sort of wondering if fashion could survive, if this is the kind of problem of our time. So I went on a journey to learn more about it. And the best way I thought I could do this would be to interview experts. And that's where the idea of Denier, the newsletter I write, came from. And although I have a really vast knowledge of fashion history and theory, I feel like a student in this. We're not taught or teaching our students to think critically about fashion in our fashion schools. We just kind of accept, oh, that's the way it is and just carry on like nothing. And now as I look at it, I feel like I've answered my question. No, I don't think fashion can survive in its current incarnation if we want any chance at stopping emissions or global heating. I really think we have to overhaul the system in which it currently functions completely. Okay, the pledge talks about new ways of fashioning or doing a fashion. And we heard you read out some of the wording around your vision. What does it look like, in your opinion? What might a transitioned post-fashion or defashioned clothing system look like? You talk about words around regenerative or local or fair. There's a phrase in the press release around nurturing and sufficient for the needs of communities. But what might that practically look like beyond having a repair shop? Yeah, it's a really good question. I interviewed the great Liz Ricketts from the Orth Foundation for Denier. I know that you've spoken to her before, I think. And for the last question, I always ask, what would your utopia be? And she said that she really, amongst other things, wanted to see a return of fashion culture. And I've thought a lot about that since. What is that? What does it look like? And when I interviewed Rebecca Burgess, who's the founder of Fibre Shed, she talked about producing clothes within the bounds of our local environmental carrying capacity. I think this is really exciting for me because I think this would mean when you travel to England, you would see clothes made of Irish linens and Scottish heritage rules. When you travel to the West Coast of America, you would have clothing made from the cotton that easily grows there. And I think we've hurtled towards this globalised world when we can eat what delicacies we want from wherever we want. 
and the clothing doesn't really vary much from Shanghai to Mexico City. So I think post-fashion system is one where what we wear is tied up in how we live our lives and the environment we live it in. So post-fashion would be where clothing is measured by internal validation, not external validation. I think fashion's repeatedly been used as a tool for oppression. Colonialism is an example of that. So it'd be incredibly liberating for societies worldwide to be released from that and to find kind of collective expression again through clothing. And when you ask, what is that? I think I think it would be so varied, it's really difficult to define at this moment. And I think it would really give us a chance to be creative about how we clothe ourselves and dress our bodies in a way that we haven't really been able to. Claire. We started with a pledge and a sort of call to action. What do you hope that people will take from this event and this launch of this new Fashion Act Now campaign? Can we call it a campaign? I don't know whether it's a campaign. I feel like it's um, I feel like it's a launch of a concept, which is not the same as a campaign to me. And I guess my understanding of the word radical is that it means to take something from the root, to uproot it and to really look at how to do that. And I think there's a huge value in being able to take something that that feels this fundamentally radical into the fashion space to really ask people what what are they going to do with it? And I don't know, let's see, you know, because there have been so many attempts to get the fashion industry to be a bit better, to pay people a little bit better, to stop doing quite so much damage. And I think at this moment, it's appropriate to take something this full on into that space and say, well, how about this? How about we just dismantle all of the harm? How about that? And I think, well, I hope it will begin a completely different kind of discourse on the problems and what we should be doing about it rather than tweaking a a toxic system around the edges. Sam, do you want to tell us what do you think is the power of a pledge? We discussed this earlier in this conversation. Obviously, it takes more than simply setting an intention. But why do you think it's useful to begin there? Yeah, I really think it's important to give people something to act on, to have a bit of like an obligation or commitment to a certain movement. And even more so than that, to really see that their voice and their signature is key to the success of this movement. You know, we need and welcome everyone. Signing our pledge is really a sign of community. And I think that's quite powerful for all of us involved. And that's why we want as many signatures as we can get. Okay, so what sort of fashion future do you want to be part of? I want to be part of one that exists and lives in harmony with our people and planet. You know, one that is aware of the context that it sits in. One that's more creative and less obsessed with growth and profit and challenges us to be more creative and collaborative. I really want to be part of post-fashion. That's why I'm with FAN and even the process to getting there, this de-fashion process. It's all quite exciting um, to be a part of. And I, I feel just really honored to even be in the conversation and room with these other women who I've learned so much from already. So I hope other people feel inspired to do the same. Belle, what's your hope? We have seen so many efforts from the fashion industry to, as Claire said, tweak around the edges. There is a will within the industry to change. There is a a recognition of the need to change. I really actually believe that. What's holding it in place is these structures 
economic structures, um, cultural structures. So what I'm hoping for is that uh, the fashion industry will start to recognize that there are people out there who need more, who are demanding more. You know, it's a really, really challenging concept. We hope to spark not only conversation and debate, but a, a genuine understanding that the change we need is, is far greater than anything that anyone's proposed yet. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. You can find the show notes for each episode and read our magazine over on our website, www.thewardrobecrisis.com. And that's where you can also sign up for our free sustainable fashion newsletters. I hope you've enjoyed the show. I'd love you to help us spread the word. Tell a friend, share on social media, or leave us a rating and review in Apple Podcasts. It really helps new listeners find us on the app. You can get in touch with us on social media. The show is on Instagram, at The Wardrobe Crisis, and I'm on there too. And on Twitter, I'm at Mrs. Press. Finally, if you'd like to support us financially, look for Wardrobe Crisis on Patreon. There's also a link in our Instagram. But for what you'd spend on a magazine each month, you can be part of the Wardrobe Crisis Patreon community, and you'll get exclusive podcast content, articles, and special access. Because I love you Because I love you